I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. The famous refrain of Psalm 122, verse number 1. And isn't it still a privilege that we've each been given, even at the second time this day, to come together with the peacefulness, the tranquility of this hour, and to understand the, the thing for which we prayed, that we might in fact give consideration to the matter of worship, to the God who so richly deserves our worship, and also as part of that to give thought to prayer, to a study of His Word for a few moments, to lift our voices in song, all of which will help us to start our week in a more profitable way, certainly in His side. And tonight as we give thought too to another lesson from the Word of God, you perhaps notice that the title again listed in both the bulletin as a few moments ago, their eyes were open, taken from Luke 24 verse 31. Over the next few moments this evening, I would hope that we would be able to notice some thoughts perhaps along this line. Isn't it truly a fascinating thing in life from time to time how that you and I can be approached with, maybe even interact with a number of things? We may in fact see a lot, hear a lot, read a lot. We are inundated with information. But yet sometimes as we're exposed to it, we miss the full meaning of it. I suppose we're each tempted along that line in one way or another. Perhaps we see it, but really we don't see it. We fail to grasp the great significance of it, or we fail to appreciate the message that is being shared with us. Sometimes as we give thought to that, it does bring us to a lesson like this one in which their eyes were opened. In the closing chapter of the book of Luke, we are in a position to come face to face with some individuals whose eyes were opened, and I would invite all of us to readdress tonight the means by which that happened so that perhaps our eyes can be more often open towards some things about us. It is with that in mind that I would hope we can approach the lesson like this. First, we'll recount a bit of the story, the inspired biblical record, and then seek to extract some lessons that might be useful and that might be very helpful for us. To do that, let's in fact go back to that closing chapter of the book of Luke. And as you do that with me, we come face to face with this set of realities. First of all, as the 23rd chapter ended, we already saw the blessed Son of God had been crucified. Put to death He was for the sins and characteristics of the human family in its darkness and in the groping character of its iniquity. Jesus had been put to death. Inasmuch as those things were highlighted in verse 46 and following of that chapter, we notice, of course, His body was also buried. Those bodies that die, we anticipate that in the natural order of matters, in so many cases, they are buried. And so it was with the, Lord, with the body of our Savior. As you notice even beyond that, Joseph of Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, had a part to play in the activities of that burial. It was all done, it would seem, in a measure of haste. We well remember that as the evening had come upon them in that day, it seems as though they made all their preparations, and they in fact seemed somewhat quickly to have made the preparation of the Lord's body for burial. It seems that there were some women who had also prepared some additional spices and some additional ointments, and in chapter 24, verse 1, they came early in the morning on the first day of the week to in fact continue that preparation, to fix it in the way they deemed appropriate and right. Much to their shock and much to their surprise when they approached where the Lord's body had been laid, they found the stone had been rolled away. 
And not only that, as they proceeded to look for the body, it too was nowhere to be found. Amazingly enough, of course, they found themselves in the company of two angelic visitors. And they had a very interesting set of things to say. They said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. Any of us, I suppose, could be well in a position to appreciate their surprise and their bit of concern. The text says they were perplexed. As you can well imagine, in light of all of that, they quickly proceeded, however, to return to the place where those apostles were and to share with them these set of events that they had now found. We well remember those apostles had heard the Lord say more than once that on the third day I shall rise, Luke 18, 31. But all the while they had heard that, now they're about to come face to face with it. These women that came back to share with them, we couldn't find the body. The stone was rolled away. I would invite you to notice verse number 11 of Luke 24, where there it simply says, And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Those apostles didn't accept as truth what they said. They considered it merely idle tales, matters that were only statements that they were making, not backed up with the fullness of evidence. As you'll notice in the verses that follow, something rather remarkable, though, began to take place. Peter and John ran to the place where the sepulchre were. Even though John arrived first, it was Peter who first went in. And they too found it as the women had said. The body wasn't there. That all brings us immediately to verse 13. In Luke's gospel account, it is this which is a remarkable record that joins so beautifully with what we've just read, but yet the other gospel accounts don't give us all these details. It is with that in mind, you'll notice beginning in verse 13, that the following set of ideas take place. What an amazing day this resurrection account was. It truly was a monumental event in the history of this world, in the history of all of time. The resurrection of our Savior, and there are some others about to come face to face with, with its reality. Speaking of verses 13 and following, there were two of the Lord's disciples making their way from Jerusalem to the little village of Emmaus. It was positioned some seven miles distant from Jerusalem, and as they proceeded on their way toward that destination, we find beginning in verses 13 and following that they had a rather notable discussion about the events of the day and the events of the last few days. Along the way, a stranger, one whom they at the time didn't know, joined them and began to enjoy conversation with them. Notice with me, if you would, beginning in verse 13. And behold, two of, them that, <clears throat> two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. If we merely pause at that point, we have noticed already that as they walked upon their journey to Emmaus, that Jesus Himself joined Himself to them. But verse 16 reminds us that their eyes were holden, that they did not know Him. Here was the very Master, the Savior Himself, walking with them, joining conversation with them, enjoying the same, and yet 
they did not appreciate who he was. In fact, the text reminds us their eyes were holden. That Greek word, in fact, means to restrain or to hold. And thus, in consequence of that fact, they did not recognize. They did not appreciate, acknowledge who, in fact, he was. The text goes on to say this, And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and had the chief priests and their rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher, and found it even so as the women had said. But they saw him not." Though the names of the other disciple is not given, Cleopas told us very easily what had been the central matter of their conversation. Jesus, first of all, had asked. Notice again verse 17. What manner of communications are thee which ye have and are sad? These disciples were sad. Their countenance had fallen. They were bothered, disrupted, somewhat upset apparently about the state of affairs. As Jesus asked these questions, Cleopas was quick to say, Are you a stranger here? Are you not aware of what has taken place concerning this Jesus of Nazareth, whom we thought would be the one that would redeem Israel, the one that we considered a prophet, the one who is mighty in word and in deed, the one who our rulers condemned and also allowed to be crucified? Isn't it amazing to hear the sadness almost come through in the voice of Cleopas? We thought He would be the one to deliver us, the one to lead us to the place of recognizing again the greatness of God's kingdom. We thought it should have been so, and yet this morning we were again so marvelously astonished when our women went to the sepulcher and found the body gone. And even two of our number also went and found it as they described. Cleopas had said so much in so little space, hasn't he? You and I can well imagine what if it had been us on that road to, to Emmaus. What would have been the topic of our conversation? Would it have surrounded what had taken place in Jerusalem in the recent days? Would it have surrounded what the women had found that morning? It isn't natural for the body to be gone like this. And angels announcing that He isn't here? They were in fact astonished as the text indicated. After hearing all of that... Again, Cleopas' comments to Jesus. I wonder how the Lord responded. What did He have to say in response to what Cleopas himself had said? I would invite us to notice then beginning in the very next verse, Jesus did have something to say, and not only was it something, it was something that really should capture our attention even this very evening. Beginning in verse number 24, I'm sorry, verse number 25, it says, Then he said unto them, This is now the Lord speaking. 
he in response said, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Jesus, as He began His reply, didn't He use such a direct tone of voice and a direct choice of language? Verse 25, O fools and slow of heart. Ought not, he said, verse 26, Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory. As the Lord listened to the comments of Cleopas, as He listened to the things that Cleopas shared concerning all that had happened and the confusion and perplexion in his mind, he cut to the heart of the matter, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered just as you have indicated, and ought not that Christ to have risen, in the words of verse 26, and enter into His glory. The remarkable set of features and concepts, as Jesus introduced these matters to Cleopas and to the other disciple that was a walking with Him, doesn't it all point us directly to verse 27? After Jesus introduced the thought that way, He says, "...and beginning at Moses..." And all the prophets he expounded unto them, and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Would it not have been an incredibly beneficial and scintillating thing to have listened to the fullness of the Lord's exposition that day? It again says in verse 27, He began at Moses. It wasn't that he began in perhaps days recent to the era of Jerusalem in that New Testament era. He took their mind back as far as the scenes of the days of Moses. And He unfolded in their very hearing the fullness, the character, the greatest of those things concerning the nature of the Messiah, concerning the fullness of that one that should be the Christ. And as He expounded those things, it says in verse 27, all the prophets... Jesus pointed not just to Moses, but those prophecies of which you and I no doubt are so familiar from prophets like Micah, prophets in fact like Daniel, prophets like Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Isaiah. And the Lord brought these to bear, perhaps showing to them how they prophesied of the crucifixion, how they prophesied of the burial, how they prophesied of the resurrection, how they prophesied of all those matters and the benefit that should come to the human family as a result of it. It is interesting to notice the word the Holy Spirit chose here. It says, He expounded. That word means He explained carefully. The Lord didn't just pass over the Old Testament thoughts with little emphasis. He explained it with diligence. He explained it with care. He explained it with a great sense of helping them see the fullness of those prophecies. And then verse 27 closes by saying, In all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. No doubt they had never appreciated the fullness of the Messiah the way the Lord presented it then. As you can see, beginning in verse 28, they did arrive at their destination. I've often thought, I'm sure that walk perhaps seems such a short walk to them as they listen moment by moment to these scriptures portrayed, explained, and elaborated upon. But, as would be expected, they did reach the destination. And verse 28 says, 
And when they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. They were so mesmerized by what the Lord said. They were so overcome, it would seem, with interest and excitement. The Lord apparently had at least not made a careful statement about stopping. But they would have none of that. They constrained him, the text says. And that word means they compelled him. They exerted pressure and force. Please remain with us. The evening has come. The day is far spent. And in verse 29 it says, He went in to tarry with them. The Lord did tarry. He remained. He went in with these two disciples. And verse 30 says, And it came to pass, As He sat at meat with them, He took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And the wording is so strongly reminiscent of some other occasions in which the Lord did something similar. Because in verse 31 it says, And their eyes were opened, and they knew Him, and He vanished out of their sight. This very one whom they'd walked with, no doubt for quite a bit of time, seven miles may well at the pace or gate they walked. We don't know how long it took them, perhaps an hour, perhaps two But inasmuch as the walk took some amount of time, suddenly now they had not known who He was before. They did now. Suddenly at the meal, as they watched Him break bread, as they listened to Him speak, as they listened to Him offer blessing for the food, the text simply says, their eyes were opened and they knew Him. They'd spent perhaps an hour or more with this one who was the Son of God, the very one that was the subject of what they'd been talking about before, the very one whom those prophecies had pointed to, and yet they didn't know who He was. But now they did. Their eyes being opened, though, it says in verse 31, He vanished out of their sight. That text indicates to us the following. He departed suddenly and in an unseen fashion or way. Inasmuch as he was gone, verse 32 is a remarkable comment about their reaction now once they knew him. It says, And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us by the way and while he opened to us the Scriptures? We can almost appreciate a level of sincerity and understanding in that that had never been a part of their life before. Did not our heart burn within us? as they listened with such gratification to that which He spoke along the way. They here describe it as spiritual heartburn. You and I know how uncomfortable physical heartburn can be, but they, with a load of excitement and appreciation of the moment, were overwhelmed with spiritual heartburn. Did not our heart burn within us while He talked to us by the way and while He opened to us by the Scriptures? If that's what spiritual heartburn is, may we all have a double dose of it. For in light of a concentration, an appreciation of something like that, notice what they did in verse 33. It says, And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They had just traveled near the close of the day to Emmaus. The fact of the closing of the day didn't hinder them from going back to Jerusalem. And I suspect the return trip was a lot faster than the trip to Emmaus. As they returned, notice who they found. They found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, verse 33. And they proceeded to say in verse 34, 
The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. It seems that they with a great sense of fervor and excitement returned to Jerusalem sharing with the apostles, guess what? He is risen. The women this morning were right. Even Simon is correct. The Lord is risen indeed. We have spoken with Him on the road to Emmaus. They told them all that had happened. In the very next verse it says, And as they thus spake, verse 36, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. While these two were sharing the record, while they were sharing their story, the Lord miraculously appeared, giving additional convincing evidence that indeed He was the resurrected Christ and He was the resurrected One. What an interesting scene. What a great event that these two were so privileged to share in that journey and then finally their eyes were opened. I might submit and suggest in light of those things, what might be some lessons in all of this for you and for me, even today, about eyes being opened? First of all, we might begin with the first comment or two. But as we do that, then to make three quick applications to your life and mine today. First of all, near the top of that slide, a rehearsal of some of the principal thoughts we've seen. Two disciples who participated in an event but did not recognize it was Jesus. But then, in verse 31, their eyes were opened. As we noticed at the outset of the lesson, sometimes at least, a thing that can be parallel to that might well happen to you and me. Maybe we can participate in something, have some degree of appreciation for it, but really miss the main point. Even though we involve ourselves in it, even though we participate in it, even though others share with us in that regard, but as you can see there beginning at the bottom, some lessons that you and I might consider might begin with this one. First of all, there are three things in this chapter off which it is said that it was opened. Three things in Luke 24 are said to have been opened. Those, in fact, form the basis of the rest of the comments tonight. The first one is in verse 31. Their eyes were opened. And thus, let's give some focus and some thought to that very notion for just a moment. Their eyes, in fact, were opened. The parallel to that, from, in many ways, seems to us to take us to some of the elements of our Christian life. Can it not be the case from time to time that we arrive at a point in life when we too can be aware of something, maybe even participate in it, but yet fail to appreciate the true significance of it? and fail to appreciate the meaning that it can have in life. Just a few examples may well serve to, to characterize the point. What about the Lord's Supper? We understand each and every first day of the week, the God of heaven has set the table, if you please, before us by way of His command. And yet, isn't it at least tempting for some to approach it with an element of tradition? an element of ritual in which the character and significance is somehow lost. The church in Corinth faced that problem, didn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 20 and continuing through the end of that chapter, Paul discussed with them their problems concerning the observance of the Lord's Supper. And among the things he noted were these. In verses 25 and following, Ye indeed are supposed to show the Lord's death, by virtue of that Lord's Supper till He come. 
And in light of that, he said, a man must examine himself. That word means to prove himself. And so as we give thought to the Lord's Supper, do we allow it to become simply a ritual that's done on Sunday and not give thought to really what those emblems represent and the elements that they convey? Jesus, again, as He Himself said, This is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This blood or this cup is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, 28. As Paul addressed the Corinthians in light of that, he said, If we don't discern the Lord's body and His blood, then we take it unworthily and we will receive damnation to our souls because of it. Does that sound as if we should allow it to become a rote matter? Something that's done just to take up means of a few moments because God said on Sunday we're supposed to do this? We understand well that it goes far deeper than that. It is an absolute proclamation of our dedication to the Scriptures, our understanding that it is that body and that blood and that we are making an open proclamation that shall stand until He comes again. That is the significance of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? And your life and mine should be lived in a way that's dedicated to the truth upon which that Lord's Supper is presented. Is our life in Christ emblematic of the purity of His body and the purity of that which He set forth? We thus should strive to live nobly, honestly, devotedly and with determination to His cause so that when we partake it, others may see in our life a representative of what a Christian is of course supposed to be. What about the element of prayer? Is it also possible for us to overlook that character as well? We know from the teaching of the Word of God how powerful that prayer is and the kind of thing that it can present in terms of strength to the life of those dedicated to the Master. But yet all the while, you and I can become to the point we fail to involve ourselves in it as we ought. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Luke 18, 1. Didn't Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5, a verse with only three words in it, pray without ceasing. What about that promise the Lord made in 1 John 3, 22? On that occasion, wasn't it true? He said, whatsoever ye ask in my name, if we do His commandments, we shall receive of Him. Do we believe that? We should then always seek to pray according to His will, understanding that let our eyes too be opened to the power of prayer, to the power, say, of the Lord's Supper, and yea, the other elements of our life in Christ. All spiritual blessings are found in Jesus, Ephesians 1 verse 3. Perhaps those blessings lead us to a second point that you and I might take, for something else was opened in this chapter. Not only were the eyes of those two disciples opened, but you might also appreciate the following with me from verse 32. It again says, And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us by the way and while He opened to us the Scriptures? The second thing in this chapter that was opened was the Scriptures. And tonight, how lovingly powerful it is that you and I can have open Scriptures on our lap, in our mind, in our thinking process, so that we too can understand the openness and the leadership and the guidance that it provides. Perhaps a few additional comments concerning that ought to be in order. 
it would seem by the reaction of those two disciples, they had not heard the Old Testament expounded to them in the way the Lord did it. No doubt they had been in the synagogue many times. No doubt they had heard many expositions of the Old Testament. But it would seem never one quite like the Lord had shared. Isn't it true sometimes when you and I come face to face to an open scripture, we encounter a verse that we've never read quite that way before. And given new circumstances in life, perhaps we find the answer to something that we had before never quite appreciated, never quite seen it that way. Doesn't that impress upon us the need to have an open scripture? To let the scriptures always be open before us and in fact be that guide that we so desperately need through the concourse of our life here. In Romans 10, 17, the inspired writer there said that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we then expect an increase in faith and we anticipate such, there is but one way that that shall occur. It is with an open scripture. And it is with a life that pursues and proceeds to order itself after those open scriptures. Those noble comments concerning the Bereans in Acts 17 certainly are worthy to earth for our thinking again. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. As they listened to the preaching in that ancient city of Berea, they found that truth was shared because they compared it with the scriptures. They weren't just content to settle for what a man may have said. They wanted what God said. Their desire was open scriptures. The church in Thessalonica, though on that occasion they weren't so highly commended, Paul later did greatly commend them. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For the which cause also thank me God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually also worketh in you that believe." Those brethren at that time in Thessalonica received the Word of God, but not as merely the Word of a man. They received it as, in fact, the all-sufficient, fully inspired, authoritative Word from heaven. And they, in fact, proceeded to effectually follow it. Open Scriptures. Verse 32 of Luke 24. Second thing opened in this chapter, perhaps commending to us so often the beauty of open Scriptures. I've listed a few verses from the longest chapter in the Old Testament, the 119th Psalm, and among those listed, might we well begin with these. Verses 15 and 16 of that chapter. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. The psalmist made a tremendous statement on that occasion, didn't he? I'll meditate upon thy precepts. I'll give direction and consideration to thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. The 140th verse of that same chapter, O how love I thy law! It is my meditation all the day. That verse, verse number 97, perhaps points us to one that occurs a few verses later in verse 140. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. And on and on the psalmist goes, reminding us then and now about the greatness of open scriptures. So far we've seen two things opened in Luke chapter 24. There is one more. This one occurs in a verse that we haven't read yet. But I would invite you to look with me, beginning reading at verse number 44. 
And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. And so on this occasion, a third thing is opened in this chapter. First, the eyes. Second, as we've just noted previously, the Scriptures. And now thirdly, their understanding. And as we come to this last one, this will be the final thought to the lesson this evening. And with it, we come to these comments. The Lord supernaturally, apparently, aided in their understanding so that their understanding, in fact, was opened. But as you and I notice the comments of the New Testament, that degree of miraculous activity does not occur to you and to me today. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, reminds us rather clearly, as does a few other chapters in the New Testament, that those days of God showing a special respect of persons like that is no more. God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Peter's famous comment to Cornelius in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. As you can imagine then, their understanding being open points us to the reality today that the privilege is ours to give our determination and dedication to a study of this book. No wonder the Bible study periods that our church supports the opportunities that we have, just like this one in which a lesson from the Word of God is brought, and the other opportunities on a personal level that we have to open the Scripture should enhance our understanding and lead us to a fuller appreciation of the means of the Word of God. Those claims by some in our world that the Bible cannot be understood by the common person are just plainly false. Paul stated in Ephesians 3 verse 4, When you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul said to the Ephesians, When you read it, you should be able to understand it. And you can understand it. And just like Habakkuk in the days of old, in Habakkuk 2 verse number 2, he said, Habakkuk, write the vision and make it plain so that those who read it may run. They were to understand so clearly what Habakkuk wrote that they would then jump into action and proceed at once to implement the things that God had revealed. God meant His Word to be understood, didn't He? In John 6, verse 63, the Master Himself said, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. It would be a strange kind of life then if we couldn't understand it. It would be a darkened life, an unfit life, an inappropriate life, but He said... The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Three things opened in this 24th chapter, the closing chapter of Luke. And tonight as we draw this lesson to its conclusion with them, we've been reminded of the need to have open eyes to the reality of the blessings we enjoy in Christ. We've been reminded of the need to ever have open scriptures as our sole and singular guide. And we've been reminded to have open understanding relative to that which God has taught us. With those three things opened, our life will be a strong testimony to the truth of God and a strong testimony to our consideration and our dedication to the things He's revealed. It might be tonight that one or more in this audience has had eyes that have been closed, understanding that's been closed, in part because of scriptures that have been closed. But if tonight you wish to make a repentance, a statement of change and a renewed vision of vigor in your life serving the Master, 
tonight we would be honored to be a part of assisting you in your, in your obedience to the gospel. If you are one who has never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, why not tonight? This ninth day of October 2011, there will never be a better day than this one for you to be baptized into Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 7. If, in fact, that would be the wish and the desire of your life tonight, understand there are some things that must be done previous to it. You must hear the word of the Lord as you've done this evening. You must believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God, Acts 8, 37. You must repent of the sins in your life required in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. Furthermore, you must confess in a verbal way the nature of Jesus as the Son of God set forth for us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and to be immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2, 38. If that would be the need of your life tonight... It could be a joyous new day for you in which you'd be a new creature in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If you have been a member of the Lord's body, previous in life, but at this point are not faithful, perhaps due to any number of things that have inched into your life, no doubt due to the devil himself, why not give him a quick exit to your life tonight, put Jesus on the throne of your heart, and proceed to live with him with all of the energy and all the character of your life. If we could pray with you and for you, we'd be honored to do that as well this evening. And if we could be of help to you, we would invite you to come while together we stand and sing the selected hymn.